The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning, everyone. So there's a, a remarkable verse in the Dhammapada, at least it was remarkable for me in that I spent a lot of time <coughs> considering and reflecting on it. And uh, the verse goes this way. Don't give up your own welfare for the sake of others' welfare, however great. Clearly know your own welfare and be intent on the highest good. So when I first saw this verse, um, I kind of just stopped me. Really? Is this really right? Don't give up your own welfare for the sake of others' welfare, no matter how great. And uh, I certainly had received a message through growing up in all kinds of ways of the importance of caring for other people. The and the idea that uh, not being selfish and not prioritizing oneself, and certainly there must be hugely important things in the world uh, to care for, to meet, to fix, um, that uh, it's certainly worthy of sacrificing my own welfare for, and, um, and that maybe is appropriate. But this verse by the Buddha is, says differently. So it would seem that this is kind of a selfish message. And in fact, it's in a, in a chapter of the Dhammapada that is uh, titled, Oneself. <laughs> and, um, and it has some you know, other nice verses in it. Um, by oneself alone is evil done. Is evil done. Born of oneself, produced by oneself, it grinds down those devoid of wisdom as a diamond grinds down a gem. So in terms of you yourself, the responsibility, if you, you know, you, only you do evil. It's a powerful word. Um, you don't, you know, not other people, isn't other people who trick you into it or, you know, force you into it, but... And then the second verse is, oneself indeed is one's own protector. What other protector could there be? With self-control, one gains a protector hard to obtain. So these are all messages about kind of oneself, importance of oneself. And, and so it could seem like a very strong individualistic message it's a strong individualism here about you, yourself, about the person. And uh, is uh, Buddhism, is teachings of the Buddha, uh, individualistic? Is it self, a form of self-preoccupation? And um, I don't know if it's self-preoccupation, but is it kind of, has, does it have a very strong individualistic flavor or approach to it? And I think the answer is yes. No, yes and no, maybe, it depends. (laughs) And then there's another story 
our story of a wonderful story I I find kind of delightful that there are um, a group of three disciples of the Buddha, three monks, who are in a small park, woodland woodland park, little forest, uh, that's uh, protected or cared for by a, a park keeper or someone. And uh, they're there practicing, living in this little woodland. And uh, the Buddha is also wandering around. And uh, he comes to this woodland and maybe thinks it's a place to spend the night or sit and meditate or something. And so he starts walking into it. And the park keeper says to him, uh, you know, wait a minute, you can't go in here. Uh, There are these other uh, uh, disciples of the Buddha in there who are meditating and should be left alone. The part of the delight of this is that the story is that the park keeper doesn't recognize the Buddha as the Buddha. <laughs> and, um, and there's a couple of stories where that happens, someone doesn't recognize the Buddha. And I, I just delight in this because, you know, you know there is a kind of uh, hagiography or idealization of Buddha where he just, you know, radiates light and kind of floats and, you know, is... You know, just you know, you know, you would, you know, you would recognize the Buddha a mile <laughs> a mile away. You know, you'd be blinded, and and here this you know, I, he doesn't even reckon doesn't recognize him, and so it's kind of a nice story. But it's also, I think, something um, that, uh, metaphoric about this story that um, there's something about not recognizing the Buddha, which says something very profound about how someone who's awake shows up, and. Um, and there's something not to be recognized there, to be seen. So, but then uh, these three disciples of the Buddha monks hear what's going on, and they come out and say, oh, but the park keeper, this is our teacher. Please let him come in. So the, uh, the Buddha comes in, and the first thing he asks the, his disciples is, uh, are you getting enough food? Are you comfortable here in your dwelling? And they say, yes. So he asks about their physical situation. Yes, we're comfortable, we're getting enough food. And then he asks them, um, um, how are you living together? Um, I hope that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. It's a nice, beautiful kind of expression of living together in harmony. And, and, uh, and this expression, uh, living together like milk and water, uh, the opposite of that would be living together like oil and water. Now, oil and water separates, milk and milk just dissolves into the water and um, becomes indistinguishable. And, um, and, so, and this idea that uh, these three were living together kind of like milk and water is represented in the sutta is that uh, the Buddha refers to all three of them by the name of one of them. So it's a little unusual, but kind of maybe also metaphorically they're all in it together. And then he, uh, they say, yes, we are, living, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly, kindly eyes. 
And the Buddha says, the, 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 the name the Buddha uses, Anuroda. But Anuroda, how do you live thus, Venerable Sir? So as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me, that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. So here's an example of people living together in community in a very intimate, close way, so close that they feel like they're one in mind. And they're caring for each other, and they're putting aside their own personal wishes for the welfare of the group. So is, um, is Buddhism really a form of, n- not individualism, but is it a form of collectivism or groupism? Or is uh, uh, altruism and <coughs> compassion and being being a caretaker of the wider community the important part of what Buddhism really emphasizes? And the answer is yes, no, yes and no, maybe, it depends. <laughs> so, um, and so, and we find that different people enter the Dharma enter Buddhism uh, through different doors, and perhaps two big gates that um, maybe it exists are uh, some people enter it through the door of individualism, their own practice, and some people enter it enter it through the door of community, of being part of community and collective, and uh, and there are uh, different forms of Buddhism also that specialize in these different doors. And uh, probably it's fair to say that for the most part, um, this more uh, uh, kind of Buddhism that has developed here in the West, especially our kind of Vipassana Buddhism that's, uh, you know, uh, still remains fairly predominantly white and, and Protestant kind of culture, acculturated kind of thing, it has a kind of indiv- strong individualistic flavor, I think. Uh, I, IMC, even still here at IMC, I think, even though other groups, other Vipassana groups look at IMC and see, oh boy, there's a lot of community here. We have a lot of community values and our retreat center is set up to be very community kind of orient, oriented compared to other places, but still it has that flavor. And it makes some sense because we're a meditation center and uh, meditation is usually done, even if it's done together in groups, uh, you know, we we close our eyes, and it's a lot of it is internally focused. So the f- this you know, center of f- focus and attention is here in this person. But there are other uh, quite wonderful Buddhist groups that emphasize <coughs> community and being together in community, practicing in community. And very important part of my own practice has been, in fact, practicing in community 
And a lot of the ways that I've grown in the Dharma, uh, a lot of the ways that I've become freer and wiser and more compassionate, happened because I was practicing in community and situations where it wasn't as dramatic as uh, blending on milk and water, but where clearly uh, uh, putting aside my own wishes and caring for others was an important part of the growth and development of <clears throat> myself and, and learning how not to be self-concerned self, uh, you know, so much. And so there's different doors to go through. And, um, but I think both doors, regardless of which door we go through, it isn't like one is maybe better than the other, but, if, but it's a door that goes into the practice. And if we do the practice, then we find that um, this separation or this strong distinction between self and other, the way that I've set it up here, begins to dissolve. And one of the, one of the beginning, beginning, beginning places for that uh, is in following the Eightfold Path. There's a somewhat famous in Buddhist circles um, little story where Ananda, Buddha's main, main kind of attendant for many years, uh, uh, comes to the Buddha and says, uh, Venerable Sir, I think uh, the whole holy life, the whole practice is having, um, uh, he says, half the holy life is having good spiritual friends. And the Buddha says, don't say that. <laughs> um, it's the whole spiritual life is having good spiritual friends. And, but then he goes on to, Buddha goes on to explain that a little bit. And he says, because if someone has a good spiritual friend, uh, that person uh, will encourage you to engage in the Eightfold Path. And this encouragement to be on the path, the Eightfold Path, is uh, kind of the, one of the important roles of being in community or have, or have teachers, is this is important, this is a way of living, this is what supports it all. And the Eightfold Path has a delightful, I think a profound, balance between paying attention to oneself and paying attention and caring for the community. These two, I see them as integrated in the Eightfold Path itself. Because um, uh, it begins by having right view, and that's up to you, the perspective that you have. And only you can be responsible for your perspective that you live by. So it's something that's fairly individualistic that you take responsibility for it about how you show up and how you see the world. But then the next uh, four factors of the Eightfold Path um, have, a, have a lot to do with how we live in community, that we live in community with compassion and loving kindness, that we live in community uh, without um, lying, without using abusive speech, that we have kind speech, supportive speech, true speech, that we live in community without uh, harming other people through any kind of physical harm or verbal harm or um, we don't take things from people, we don't steal from people, we don't engage in sexual misconduct. There are various ways that can harm people and that's caring for the community around us and it's, ca and it's caring for oneself. And then we also uh, have what's called right livelihood 
that we have a livelihood, a profession, we have a way of living. Livelihood means kind of the, the w- way in which we're supported in our life, whether we work or not. That that way of living uh, doesn't harm other people, doesn't harm people around us or harm ourselves. And then the last three steps of the Eightfold Path comes back to be uh, very personal. Uh, it's really kind of monitoring your own mind, your own heart, and caring for it. No one else can care for your quality of your mind, the quality of your heart, as well as yourself. In fact, if you depend on other people to act just right, to behave just right to you, so that your inner life can be well and happy and free, uh, you're really not free. You're actually kind of, the danger is if you do too much of that, and you, to use dramatic Buddhist language, you become a slave <laughs> or in bondage to the world around you. So taking responsibility for this mind and this heart of ours is something that really is up to us. And, you know, maybe I should have asked for forgiveness for the example I'm going to use, but it's, um, you know, it's like uh, no one else can pee for you. (laughs) You know, some things you have to do for yourself. (laughs) So the idea that, uh, you know, caring for your own mind is something only you can do for yourself. So there is certain things which are done generally in an individualistic way, right? Like peeing. Um, collective peeing, I guess, is possible. But <laughs> 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 and, um, and so it's appropriate to kind of have sometimes an orientation in certain areas of life to be just, you know, here, for me, this here. You know, we do certain things alone. We... And this caring for our own mind and hearts is something that we care for and take care of. Um, and so the last three factors of the Eightfold Path is really about this, looking at it. And we do it in community. Uh, it's been very important, as I said, part of my life to be practicing in community. So here's a little story, or a little idea, about that. Uh, for over 40 years now, I have regularly, a lot, gone to places to meditate with people. Just like all of us here today came here in order to meditate. I've been doing this, you know, for 40 years. And um, I started off in college where I would go twice a week to a small sitting group, Tuesdays and Thursday evenings, and I would bike there on my bike and go sit for the evening and go home. And I've done this, you know, I've, gotten, I've walked to places, I've driven my car to places, I've gone on, airplane, gone on airplanes to go to places to meditate, you know, in, in Asia, all kinds, you know, I've done, you know, a lot of this going to meditate thing. And when I was in college, one of the things I discovered was an interesting uh, uh, maybe irony or something that is. So I was going to meditate where the idea was to really be present for this experience and perhaps be non-reactive, to be settled, calm. And then I would jump on my bike and I would sometimes be in a hurry, not settled. I got to get there, got to get there on time. (laughs) 
this is important, you know, that th- that's where it's important, where I'm going. That's where I'll do this wonderful thing, you know, biking my... And at some point I realized, wait a minute, Gil. Why is the going there not the place where I begin? And so I learned very quickly that the going to the meditation group shouldn't be the place where the exception to doing the practice shouldn't like you know what's the point of not uh, you know of getting stressed so you can de-stress <laughs> you know it's kind of you know it doesn't really make sense right might as well not have gone in the first place and uh, and so I learned that how I went to these places was the practice I could take that as the practice and so I'd, ar- I'd arrive and I already felt I used to feel kind of amazed after a while where I came to this group in, in college and I would already feel somewhat concentrated and settled because I gave myself to the biking as part of the practice. And, um, and uh, you know, periodically through the years, uh, t- this little uh, tension between getting there quickly to the place I'm going to meditate or coming to IMC and i got to hurry because... <laughs> I'd say, wait a minute, Gil, this is not about hurrying. This is about practicing being present. There's no need to sacrifice my well-being, my welfare, uh, so that I can be here on time. Maybe that's the guy that goes against the purpose of what we're doing here. So then, on um, yesterday, um, I was in the supermarket shopping, and I had my, you know. I didn't gathered my, cl- my, my the food I went to buy and I went to the checkout uh, area and um, there were a lot of people yesterday in the store and so there were a lot of lines so I did the reasonable things I looked up and down and, and thought well where's you know probably the best line quickest line to stand and the one that has the shortest line or something so I chose one very quickly understood that this was the slowest line. <laughs> but I'd been standing there for a minute or two already. And, um, and so I could see that I had a choice. Standing there, I was very happy. I, kind of, I was kind of like in a little bit in awe at the, the colors and the place and the abundance of stuff and the world that was coming and going in the market and and it, you know it turned out that it's a very high ceiling in this market and and there's something for me about high ceilings and lots of space which uh, kind of is a I don't know what the right thing to say is but kind of like a mirror for the mind awareness which is open and spacious and lots of space for things and and so by the time I realized it was I was in a slow line I was very content. Just, I was just there, present for the situation. So then I realized I was standing in the slow line. And then I saw that I had a choice. I could contract, <laughs> get impatient, start searching the other lines and calculating and evaluating those cashier, those those checkout people, and that line, and how much, 
is in their shopping bag and, you know, just kind of like, you know, you know do, do the hunt <laughs> for, you know, something quicker. Because I could think, you know, well, I have important things to do. I have a list of errands, I have things I have to do, I have to get to places, and, you know, I have to, you know, there's a lot of important things, you know. So I, could ch- I had a choice of whether to give up being content and present or uh, getting, you know, all preoccupied about how to do this as quickly as I can and really focus on this problem solving of, you know, how to get the best line. But the state of kind of being content and open and present, mind expansive that I had, to me, at that point, that just felt like a great treasure. It felt like one of the best treasures that I have. It's not incidental. It's not unimportant. In fact, I've learned it's one of the best things going, most important things going, on all kinds of levels. In the present moment, it was very pleasant, very enjoyable, very nice. On a deep psychological level, it felt uh, it was so good not to be involved in being preoccupied in my thoughts, not be contracted, not be racing ahead. On a social level, it felt really healthy to be there and being attentive to the community of people I was in the store with, taking in the, ch- uh, the checkout clerk and the other persons in front of me in line and the other people, what goes on around me. And uh, it felt like a more, in a, also, also in a more global way, uh, I was taking in other information. I was taking in, you know, they had all these kind of, I guess, impulse buy things, you know, as you go out. But, uh, you know, I would look and say, wow, this comes, some, a lot of this is chocolate. And, <laughs> and where does chocolate come from? And who grows the chocolate? And is this fair trade chocolate? And, you know, how is it that through this shopping I'm connected to this wider world? So these thoughts would go through my mind. And it felt healthy to have this, that in this open, contented, present play, I was tuning into my environment and what was going on in a nice way. If I had been caught up in those thoughts about the fast, other errands, what I had to do, my, I would have lost that. So I wasn't going to sacrifice my welfare, sacrifice this goodness, this healthy, healthy place I was in for something else. The Buddha has a teaching I think it's one of those pithy teachings that are it's good to remember and, and somehow contend with. And that is, nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. To reword it, nothing whatsoever is worth becoming contracted by. Nothing whatsoever is worth becoming agitated or worked up uh, with. Those are powerful statements. If we have a tendency to get contracted or to cling or get worked (coughs) up or excited. So to focus on this, not being contracted, not clinging, not giving up this nice state that we're in, is that selfish? Is that excessively individualistic? It can't be because selfishness is one of those contractions. Selfishness is one of those 
tightness and clinging. It is one of those agitations of the mind. And you can't, it's not sustainable if we really settle back and relax and open and see what's going on. And if the direction we're going is towards peace or to non-clinging. And so, um, the, um, and then that state of non-clinging, the uncontracted place of the heart, is it appropriate to give it up for the welfare of others? Is it appropriate to give it up, you know, because other people's needs are greater than our own? Before I answer that question directly, I'll give an analogy. And that is, someone uh, has great compassion for people who swim. And especially children who are learning to swim at the beach and all that. So the person decides, you know, I'm going to, this summer, I'm going to be a lifeguard. That seems really important to all these, you know, thousands of kids on the beach. And, you know, it's dangerous out there in the water and big waves. And I'm going to be a lifeguard. And I have to do it right away, you know, because this is important. But the person doesn't know how to swim. (laughs) First, that person better learn to swim. Swimming, learning to swim is kind of an individualistic thing. You have to master it for yourself. And once it's mastered as a personal skill, then the person can be a lifeguard. But don't, you know, be a lifeguard before you learn to swim, please. That's not going to be good for them or for you. So it's... So this idea of, so there is a kind of individualistic kind of skill or connection to something we're developing in the Dharma. Uh, And it's something we want to develop first, or, you know, or or say it differently. It's a wonderful foundation for how then we're going to live in the world and care for the world, how we're going to blend like milk and water how we're going to look at each other in kindly eyes, how we're going to have mutual appreciation for each other, how, how we know when it's appropriate to give up our own wishes for the wishes of others. And it becomes uh, the reference point or the background or the foundation is this place of freedom and ease and non-clinging, subtleness, this amazing treasure the greatest wealth you can ever have in your life, the wealth that's portable, the wealth that no one can really take away from you, the wealth that only you can destroy. And that is the wealth of a free heart, free mind, the wealth of a settled, contented, you know, non-clinging state of being. Some people hear this and they don't trust it. They feel like, no, this can't, this can't be good enough. This is you know, selfish, it's about myself. And there's important things to do in the world. I have to care, I have to be involved, I have to, I have to get contracted, I have to be angry, I have to be distressed. I have to, you know, there's all these very strong sources, the messages in our own mind and from society, very strong um, th- uh, uh, 
opin- authoritative opinions that exist in us, exist in our society, for the importance of not of 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 giving up our relaxed, open, settled, non-clinging state, because. It's so important to take care of what's in the world, so important to respond and act and get or do or whatever, that it's appropriate to get contracted. It's appropriate to cling. It's appropriate to get agitated. It's appropriate to be distressed. We should be. We're supposed to be. They want us to be. We have to be. We and we do that, and then we become like a... I think we become like a, a, a lifeguard who's forgotten how to swim. That's, you know, don't go to the beach when lifeguard's forgotten how to swim. <laughs> so, um, so this, so, you know, but what, what, uh, what is possible is to really trust this place of non-clinging and the way to learn to trust it is to learn to move into the world, act in the world, begin being in the world. Don't just you know avoid the world, and then res- allow the response to the world to come from that place. And a tremendous amount of good can be done in the world. Tremendous action, a, trem- a lot of effort and energy can go into bettering the world and responding to it, taking care of our neighbors, our family, and everything from this place. It's not like either or. It's actually, ideally, it's both. And that's why the Buddha could say, don't give up your own welfare for the welfare of others, no matter how great. Because the greatest welfare doesn't have to be sacrificed in caring for the welfare of others. The great, you know, if you really know that, if you clearly understand what the, what's the best for you, stay close to it. And that becomes the, the door, the vehicle, the means, the medium by which we respond. To not respond to the needs of the world in some way or other, is probably there, we're not responding, because there is some clinging. There is some way we're closed down or shut off or not paying attention. But to come, but allow the response, our response to the world, come from the heart rather than the mind, to come from a non-clinging place rather than a clinging place, makes it feel that there's no self here. It's not about me. Certainly, you know, it's our response. But, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of take possession of it or identify with it and congratulate myself. Look how great I am. Because the place of non-clinging, that, there's not room for that. You wouldn't recognize, it's not a place where you recognize yourself in the egotistical way or as, you know, a firm place. And that's why I like to think, when the Buddha came to this little woodland, and the park keeper 
didn't recognize the Buddha, there was nothing to recognize in the conventional way. So, don't give up your own welfare for the welfare of others, no matter how great. It's not meant to be a selfish teaching. I like to think of it, it really is the opposite. Because the greatest welfare for yourself is inseparable to the greatest welfare for all. Or to be able to connect to that or meet that in an important way. And you might not like this little teaching. You might have all kinds of uh, protests and you know, you know, questioning it. And uh, I think that's really good. I think this particular t- uh, teaching, don't give up your own welfare for the welfare of others, no matter how great, is a wonderful little kind of uh, portable saying that's good to be in discussion with and to argue with and to debate with and question and how does this work and bounce off and let it be a mirror and really kind of really look deeply and let it be a way of looking more and more deeply into what makes you tick and operate and see yourself. So you don't have to agree, but I encourage you to engage in it. So, my friends, thank you for coming. <laughs>